Mattia Bonotto, it's been reported that during the recent talks regarding making the return to racing during the COVID-19 pandemic sustainable, that Ferrari proposed a return to customer cars. This is correct. Presumably, you're referring to Alfa Romeo and Haas, who would like to run last year's Ferrari chassis. No, 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 I was talking about the Scuderia. We would love to run a Mercedes chassis. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed, another edition brought to you via the gift of Zoom. As I always say, other conferencing applications are available. I'm Gareth, she's Sarah. Hello. She's Zog. No, he's He's Zog. (laughs) Don't misgender me, dude. Hi, hello. (laughs) That's got to be a first. It's been a confusing week and we're about to have a <laughs> Not further confusing. confusing week. Oh, well, it was very confusing that we've just had the British Grand Prix and yet we're going to have a Grand Prix at Silverstone this weekend as well. So that's where my confusion comes from. Sarah, did you manage to watch the British Grand Prix? Gareth, I didn't watch it live, I will admit. Shame! I, got caught up in, I know, I did watch it though. So I got caught up in Cambridge punting. Have you ever been on one of those sort of gondolo type things down a river in Cambridge? That's where I was on Sunday. But I did watch it thereafter. So I'm up to speed on the race. I do know what happened and I did watch it, but just not live. I was getting some sun. And Zoggy, did you watch it live? Actually, I also watched it not live. I had a rare opportunity to have lunch in the sun with a couple of friends. I watched it on a a two-hour delay a little bit after the event. Fair enough. Wow, what a race. Yeah, although... Well, what a finish. It was relatively dull for a large proportion and then all kicked off in the last few laps. But for me, the level of excitement for this race was astronomical through the roof as of... When did we find out about Thursday late afternoon that Hulk was in for Perez or Perez in the pink, uh, I keep wanting to say Force India, the pink racing point, the The pink pink Mercedes, the pink Panther, the soon to be Aston Martin. And I thought, considering he had such a late call up, he did rather well initially. And what a tragedy he didn't get to start the race. Oh. Well, it wasn't his fault, was it? They just couldn't get the car going. Yeah, it was sheer dumb luck. They had a clutch component fail when they started it up. And yeah, what a great shame for Hulk. You know, he had a terrific opportunity there, given how quick that car is. Even if he's a bit out of practice, it's still a great chance for him. And he didn't even get to take the start. Yeah, it is a shame. I was quite excited that Hulk was there, to be honest. I quite like him as a driver. Well, Sarah, you may or may not know, I've been a big fan of Hulk since about 2006, I think, when he was in A1 Grand Prix, and he won the A1 Grand Prix Championship. He also won GP2 at his first attempt, and I just know from the people who've worked with him how an extraordinary good a driver he is. I've always had this slight argument with Richard about it. Richard reckons he's one of the most underperforming drivers we've had in Formula One. But I just think he's only underperforming in terms of the decision of which team to be in. Well, in terms of any kind of results, you know. He's, it's, he I mean, never made the podium. Well, it sounds like he had a very, very good career ahead of making F1, didn't he? I mean, that was the yeah. attraction. Yeah. And he, they all thought that he would do exceptionally well because he was so outstanding in his 
former years. Yeah, not to be too hard on him, but he had a long time in F1 to make his mark. And yeah, he did underperform. I mean, as a big Hulk fan, what would you put that down to, Gareth? Bad timing. I think he was in the wrong team at the right time. When he was at Williams, when he came into Formula One, Williams was still a passably good team. And he did manage to get pole I think was it at Brazil many 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 years ago and he proved his ability to put a fast lap together when you needed it but during the subsequent years he never managed to be in a team that had decent performance and if only he'd managed to get to McLaren or Ferrari or somewhere else I think we'd have seen just how good he is maybe having said that The mark of a good driver, they say, is that you perform in whatever car you've got. Take, for instance, Max Verstappen and Sebastian Vettel, who both managed to make Toro Rosso's go far quicker than they should have done. But hey, we'll see. We'll find out this weekend because, of course, Hulk gets to drive again in this 70th anniversary Grand Prix. Before we move on, can we just spare a thought for Sergio Perez? He's probably quarantining by himself in a hotel or somewhere. Yeah, they Poor moved him thing. out because he, he was going to stay in a camper van or a facility at Silverstone. Oh, the poor thing. But then they upgraded it, so he did actually get to stay in a hotel. Can you imagine how awful that must be for him? Well, mm. you know, he gets a chance to catch up on his Netflix and his Amazon watch list, so maybe he's going to be, I don't know, catching up on The Good Place or maybe he hasn't watched Game of Thrones yet. Who knows, you know. Tell you what, though, he'll be completely chunted away from the Formula One. The directors of the F1 would not want him anywhere near the camp because that would be sort of game over for the whole circus, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, there was some debate as to whether he would be allowed back for the race this weekend. But FIA restrictions are for... 10 days, I think, which means that there's no way that he can compete. Well, just to clarify, presumably that's 10 days after he's been tested negative yes by negative do you mean all clear i mean all clear yes yes as in right i mean obviously he'd still have as i understand the way these tests would go if you tested him for antibodies for covid19 he would show antibodies because he has had covid19 or sars-cov-2 if he's no longer symptomatic and no longer infectious you then a 10-day grace period and then he'd be considered safe for human company because of Perez's inability or not being allowed to take part. Hulk stepped into a car very quickly with a borrowed race suit from Lance Stroll because they're more or less the same height, apparently, and went seventh in second practice in a session in which Stroll was quickest. (laughs) I am a gog. Just a practice session, though. You can't read all that much into it but Hulk was clearly doing pretty well having stepped into the car at such short notice it's a great shame we didn't get a chance to see what he did in the race to me it seems Hulk rather underperformed in his F1 career Stroll rather underperformed in that race I'm sure Racing Point would have hoped for a a better finish than he gave yeah I was gunning for Hulk to be top five or even finally get on the podium I mean let's not forget Hulk did win at Le Mans in a Porsche Zugger he did in his first attempt yeah oh no he's no slouch he's a good driver but he just never really delivered an F1 and given how things unfolded at the front of the field yeah you know this was one of those races where if he'd been on the pace who knows what kind of chance might have presented itself 
And it was a brutal race, wasn't it? The tyres on, uh, I don't know, six cars, seven cars gave up during laps round Silverstone. Well, really, was it because Kimi Räikkönen had some sort of accident, didn't he? Or was there debris left on the track that they sort of ended up crushing? But I don't think Corelli have kind of issued a definitive final statement about, you know, what their conclusions are regarding what happened to the tyres. As you say, Gareth, you know, several tyre failures, but most significantly, three front left failures you know in the last couple of laps yeah they said so there must there was carbon fiber from Raikkonen's front wing well yeah I mean you know one's first thought is there has to be something systematically wrong with the tyres surely for that to happen but then again if you've got drivers taking more or less the same line over more or less the same bit of track and there's a bit of debris left from Raikkonen's incident as you say Sarah maybe they just all happen to pick up debris in about the same place and so yeah you can get debris causing those three failures so close together, maybe. I do feel for Pirelli because one of the reasons that you come into Formula One as a tyre supplier is to prove just how good your tyre technology is. And yet uh, the FAA have given Pirelli a brief to produce marginal tyres, tyres that won't last the whole race unless you do tyre saving, to introduce a level of jeopardy into the sport. So there is a variable to make things go wrong in a period where overtaking isn't as profligate as we might hope in Formula One. And they must be gnashing their teeth when situations like this happen, because everyone points at, ah, tyre failures, tyre failures. (laughs) And it's not really a tyre failure, it's a deliberate chink in the makeup of the tools available to the teams quite deliberately put there to make racing exciting yeah basically you're right what you want out of a road tire is not the same as what formula one wants out of its tires yeah you know a road tire you want to last reliably for as long as possible to be safe consistent what f1 has asked for is as you say tires that are going to need managing that are going to cause you problems if you lean on them too hard for too long we shouldn't be too hard on Pirelli when we see what we see happen in this case but it may turn out on a bit further investigation you know maybe there was a bit of a tyre issue you know as there was in 2013 at the British Grand Prix when there was that issue with cars running over a couple of curbs in particular that were causing trouble for the particular tyre construction at the time and that issue maybe hadn't really been understood in this case yeah it, it could just be the debris plus the fact that the teams were at the end of that race running those tyres to their limit. If the race had gone a few laps longer, they'd have been coming in for tyres in any case. That's true. Well, Max Verstappen actually, he did come in for tyres, I think to try and set the fastest lap, but he right. came in yeah. for tyres after Valtteri Bottas lost his front tyre. And so he had a puncture, didn't he? And then Verstappen came in, changed his tyres assuming to get the fastest lap that perhaps they thought that they might run into trouble themselves. But then had they known that, Hamilton would have actually indeed (laughs) had a puncture they probably could have won. But they would still have been running the risk that they would have exactly the same problem. Mm. Their call to come in and change the tyres because they were worried about having a Bottas science style failure would still hold. And in fact, Mercedes did consider bringing Hamilton in tyres in those last couple of laps and given that he had that failure on the last lap you know you could argue that they made the wrong call in not bringing him in if that tyre had failed just a couple of corners earlier maybe he wouldn't have made it to the line or maybe Max would have just caught him because you've got to say that in the end I think I mean first off seeing Lewis finish the race on three wheels was quite something it was hell of an end to that race and what a finish 
but also it's a testament to just how good a driver he is and just how good Mercedes are as a team that between them they were able to manage driving two-thirds of a lap with only three working tyres and managing the speed so that Max didn't catch him up and he just managed to hang on to the lead. I'm reminded, Zog, of something I've always said as a television presenter, that when everything goes well, anyone can do that job. But when things go wrong and you still bring the programme home, that's what they pay you for. And I'm also reminded of something that Damon Hill said a few years ago. I say a few years ago now, in the mid-90s, when Damon was racing Schumacher. Do you remember there was a race... I can't remember whether it was in Germany or it was at Silverstone, but somewhere where Schumacher beat Damon Hill, despite the fact that Schumacher's Benetton at the time was stuck in fourth or fifth gear. Fifth gear, yeah, stuck in fifth gear. Fifth gear, yeah. Oh, I remember reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Damon was sort of devastated by this. It was a psychological battle that Damon was fighting with Schumacher. And... Damon was taken aside by his advisors who said, okay, well, don't get hung up by the fact that he can beat you with issues. What we have to go out now is do a bunch of laps in fourth or fifth yourself and try and drive as quick as you can. So Damon upped his game. He taught himself how to be every bit as useful as Schumacher by bringing it home even when there are problems. And that's what Lewis and his team did so elegantly. You know, he backed off, but only just enough to guarantee crossing the line ahead of Verstappen. One of the finest moments in Formula 1 in my memory, I think, that. Yeah. Well, he went from being ahead by 20 seconds to being ahead by about five or six, I think. And then when he got interviewed after the race by David Coulthard, he just went on and on and on for quite some time about how he had his heart coming out of his mouth, which I suppose is understandable. Yeah, God. I think so. A real champion's drive, you know. (laughs) What does it take to stop? Lewis Hamilton winning the British Grand Prix, you know. You yeah, think, really? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> what have we got to do? What, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it must be quite a psychological knock for the opposition to see that he can still win the race despite that. Daniel Ricciardo won the Monaco Grand Prix and I remember he had to manage his car, but the advantage he had in Monaco is very hard to overtake. It was when he won the Monaco Grand Prix driving for Red Bull the year before last. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly what the car issue was. Talking of Daniel Ricciardo, he equaled his best ever performance in Formula 1 for Renault and he came in fourth ahead of the tussle that he had between the two McLaren drivers because actually Carlos Sainz, he had a tyre puncture in the last lap too, didn't he? That's right, yeah. That's right, yeah. And as you say, great result for Ricciardo and great weekend for Renault and, you know, they were fourth and sixth. That's a pretty respectable result, which they haven't really had all that many of. So fair play to Renault for upping their game Mm -hmm. and, and actually getting a decent points haul this time around. Having watched the full length version of the race, I'm sure you saw this in the highlights, but there was a tussle mid-race towards the end of the race between Norris, Ricciardo and Sainz, Hmm. where the three of them were vying for position. That was some brilliant, brilliant racing. They were clearly in cars performing more or less the same round about the same time. And it resulted in some real racing down the grid. And, you know, if it's going to be a foregone conclusion that Lewis is going to win this championship, and it really looks like he is, doesn't it? Then all we can hang on to is great 
tussles down the grid. He's 30 points ahead already. Valtteri's obviously gone down the ladder quite significantly, having not finished in the top three. And that would be his closest competition, surely. Oh, yeah. He's on course to absolutely romp home. But will he be a world champion? Because we've got races in Europe. We've got a race in Sochi. So does that count as Asia? We've got races in the Middle East. Don't we need another continent before he's technically a world champion? Well, this is the thing. I thought you did. I thought you needed to have races on three continents for it to count as a world championship. And we don't have any races in the Americas this year. You know, Canada, America is off. Brazil and Mexico are off. I thought it was in question whether it would be a world championship or not. But they're still talking about it being a world championship. So maybe I've got that rule slightly wrong. Or maybe there's some kind of force majeure thing going on whereby the FIA has decided that circumstances being what they are, you know, the three continent rule isn't required. Before we talk briefly about the next race at Silverstone, here are my three highlights and lowlights of the British Grand Prix. Lando Norris's helmet designed by a six-year-old girl called Eva. Oh, I love that. I thought that looked great. What, was there a competition that went out? Yeah. Yes, there was, yeah. Mm. And it's so cute because mm. it looks like a six-year-old has designed it. And that's just the opposite of what you normally get in Formula One. You know, this dynamic thrusting, it's got to, you know, emphasise speed. And it's sort of emphasising amateurish and sweetness and... I love that Norris made that decision. Yeah, I agree. And apparently he's changed either his Twitter or his Instagram handle to match the fact that on his helmet it's now written Lando Nori with an S underneath it that couldn't quite fit yeah. in. Bless Lando yeah. for doing that. So nice. that's my highlight. The lowlights include A, Hulk coming back and Hulk not getting to start. And the biggest disappointment was that the robots weren't there to hand out the prizes. Yeah, I want the robots back at as many races as we can have them. <laughs> Actually, just before we leave Grand Prix, what did you make of Albon's penalty? Because I thought that was a little bit harsh. It seems to me that was really a racing incident rather than something that Albon should have got a five-second penalty for. Was that when he'd knocked off someone else's tyre? It was when Kevin Magnussen was trying to pass him around the outside. That's right, Magnussen. And Magnussen ended up getting shunted off as a result of them coming together as they both went for the apex. Yeah, Magnussen was slightly out of control at that point, And I think some sort of collision was probably inevitable whether he went for the overtake or not so I'm inclined to agree I felt it was a bit harsh but we wish Albon well in the next round and we wish Hulk well in the next round as we return to more racing at Silverstone this weekend yes the theme of this episode of Gareth Jones on speed is home most of us are spending an awful lot more time at home at the moment, perhaps working from home because of this global pandemic. We had our home Grand Prix at Silverstone last week. And of course, we had the return of two astronauts from the International Space Station just this last week. They came home to Earth. So I thought I'd offer up a song about a homesprung hero. And to prove that we don't just throw these things together, the song is in the style of a band from Woking, and it's about a driver who drove for a team who famously based in Woking. The band are The Jam. The driver is James Hunt. The team would be McLaren. So this is I Want to Be Just Like James Hunt in the style of the jam. Or for copyright reasons, in this case, the jammed. 
just like James Holmes. I wanna be the fastest by far. I wanna be just like James Holmes. Kiss on the girls and drive an F1 car. Kiss on the girls and drive an F1 car. I wanna be just like James Holmes. Wear a red suit, look dapper and smart. I wanna be just like James Holmes. Drink from every bar on the back of the bar. Drink from every bar on the back of the bar. Hey! La 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 la. I wanna be just like James Holmes, standing on the podium with a massive green. I wanna be just like James Holmes. I've been taking out of the Melbourne ring. I've been taking out of the Melbourne ring. Hey. I wanna be just like James Holmes. Wouldn't have to post on, I wouldn't have to break. I wanna be just like James Holmes. When I grow up, it's like a marble fight. When I grow up, it's like a marble fight. Sarah, the rest of this episode off, because for the next few minutes, I want to talk space with you, Zog, because it's been an extraordinary week in terms of stuff happening in space, which is technically within the on-speed remit, because to leave Earth, you've got to be doing 17,000 miles per hour. And I know Sarah is no authority on space stuff, but Zog, you and I are big space fanboys. Did you watch the return of Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley to Earth in Crew Dragon live, as I did? I did, yeah, fantastic. Wonderful to see them make a safe recovery. And first splashdown for... It's 35 years. It's 35 years, isn't it? Yeah. The last one. Well, there are two answers to this. It's 35 years officially because the last splashdown by an American crew anyway, was for the Apollo Zoyas test mission in 1975 when they docked the Apollo spacecraft command module with a Zoyas spacecraft to test that that was possible and to begin this sort of cooperation in space that ultimately led to the ISS. However, there was one other splashdown since that nobody ever mentions with people on board, and that was Zoyas 
23, if memory serves, in 1976, where a Zoya's spacecraft returning from Salyut, the early Soviet space station, and the Zoya's capsule, because of terrible weather, went off trajectory and splashed down in a semi-frozen lake in Kazakhstan. And it made it almost impossible to recover because if you splash down in water, you can get a boat out and you can recover someone. If you splash down on land, you can drive up to it and recover. But because it was in a semi-frozen lake, first of all, fog and bad weather made it impossible for them to find them for four hours. And when they got there, they couldn't get near to them. They couldn't get out onto the ice. Yeah, very difficult ground. It's very difficult territory to work on. And it was like slush. It wasn't ice and it wasn't water. It was slush. So the Zoya's re-entry capsule was sinking into the water and it would tilt it to a point where the beacon that sends out the location signal was now underwater. So they couldn't find it for hours and hours and hours. And eventually, the way that they recovered them was to take a big Soviet Zill helicopter. I'm not sure the number, a massive Zill. And they dropped the line, hooked it to the Zoya spacecraft, where the astronauts were now frozen, absolutely freezing, because they had to open the valve to let fresh air in, because they would have died otherwise of asphyxiation. And they towed it using a helicopter onto dry land. And it was some, I think, nine or ten hours after landing, which must have been excruciating. But there were some delays with the return of Bob and Doug to Earth. The time that it took to get them out of the capsule was extended because they picked up some noxious gases, didn't they? I think so, yeah. I wasn't quite on top of what was going on there, but there tends to be an abundance of caution when you're doing anything to do with recovering astronauts, you know, quite rightly. I mean, just as you need good weather conditions for launch, you also need good weather conditions for your recovery. And, you know, the weather in the area of ocean that you're intending to splash down in has to be good enough for your boats to operate safely and also calm enough that you can safely open the hatches of your capsule and clamber out without getting flooded by water. Yeah, the thing that made me most annoyed about the recovery of Endeavour was as soon as it splashed down, the two fast recovery boats which go and attach the harness which allows them to pick the Mm. capsule out of the water so the crew can egress, these two boats are also accompanied by half a dozen pleasure craft from Trump flag-waving cretins Mm. who felt it was a really good idea to go and interfere with the safe recovery of two people from outer space. Yeah, idiots. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, there are idiots everywhere. Just to remind people, of course, this is the first splashdown, well, first official splashdown for so long because in all of the NASA space shuttle missions, the orbiter would return to land on dry land. But the Soyuz capsules are designed or intended to land on dry land rather than over the ocean. It's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other, really, whether it's safer to splash down on a nice, soft, open bit of ocean or a hard bit of desolate steppe in the Far East. Yeah, well, the Russians, let's not forget, choose to land on solid ground because they've got a lot more of that than an ocean that they have access to so they can recover yeah. securely. That's why they Absolutely. did it. But America, of course, is the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean immediately available to them. But landing on water, nice soft water, that massive soft blue expanse, is not without its hazards as well. Frank Borman, in one of the later Apollo missions, threw up 
and they splashed down in sea that had something like a six foot swell and as Commander Vorman said well the Apollo capsule might make a great spacecraft but it's a lousy boat they've lost one capsule haven't they at sea wasn't it uh, Gus in, Grissom um, yeah Gus Grissom's first mission the hatch opened earlier than intended if I recall that's the polite way of putting it, and the correct way of putting it. Well, yeah, there does seem to be a genuine lack of clarity as to whether there was a malfunction or whether Gus Grissom triggered the hatch by mistake. Yeah, um, they called it screwing the pooch, didn't they? Making a terrible mistake. But sometime in the late 90s, they actually located the sunken Mercury capsule and recovered it and did a forensic analysis, and through that proved that Gus hadn't manually triggered the hatch because the switch was in the other position. Right. That it had triggered, and so his name was cleared. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that because Gus Grissom was a very well-respected astronaut, unlikely to panic and make mistakes. And remember, you know, when that hatch opened, he got out of the Mercury capsule because it was sinking, was now wearing a space suit without a helmet, and he nearly drowned. And Gus would have been the first pilot of an Apollo spacecraft. He was chosen to fly an Apollo one so there's no doubt that he was a mm. reliable guy a very capable yeah absolutely but it was a mystery for a very very long time as to whether he'd done it intentionally but it's tricky stuff isn't it landing on water but spacex once again proved that they can do pretty much anything yeah i think you can clearly say they've won that race with boeing to be the first to safely transport a crew to and from the international space station even though it's increasingly clear that NASA, in various ways, favoured Boeing during the process of choosing the bids. They got a lot more money than SpaceX. Giving them more money? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And despite that, SpaceX pulled it off. To the casual observer, the way that SpaceX have approached some of their space operations has maybe seemed a little bit reckless or a little bit like they don't know what they're doing because they've blown up quite a few rockets in the course of testing. Yeah. But that would be to sort of misunderstand exactly what's going on because what they have been doing is essentially they've been carrying out tests expecting that there would be failures because they're trying to find where and how things fail in order that they can fix those things and then next time around they'll find the next thing up the stress scale that is going to fail and in order they can test the systems more so that they get a safe system to then do the critical jobs like taking a crew to and from the ISS safely because I don't think you could suggest that they've been in any way anything other than very careful and responsible in the way they've dealt with carrying a human crew to and from space. Here's a motorsport analogy for you. On Friday practice, pretty much every driver spins off at one corner trying to find the limit of that corner. And they go, OK, well, I know I can't do that again. Right. And that's almost exactly what SpaceX were doing with their testing regime, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and which they're still doing. I mean, they're still, you know, blowing up the really big one, Starship, which is interesting, is made of stainless steel now. I know. They've changed the construction of their enormous possible Mars rocket. We'll come on to Mars in a minute from aluminium, which we're used to seeing spacecraft being made of, to building it out of steel. Yeah. Which, again, might seem like a step back. You know, why do you move away from using light, strong aerospace material aluminium to old-school clunky steel? It's basically, as I understand it, because they've decided that because this is 
going to be a reusable craft, it's easier and safer to make the kind of reusable craft they're planning to make out of steel than out of aluminium. The way that aluminium components deal with repeated stress and with being slightly damaged, bent here and there, the way that aluminium parts deal with that is rather poor compared to the way that steel deals with that. And also with newer alloys that are available, actually the steel craft isn't massively heavier than the aluminium version might be. And you've got to say, again, this is a great example of SpaceX questioning every aspect of spaceflight. They're saying, well, okay, well, instead of using aluminium, let's try another material, which had been disregarded in the past. Mm. And this is how they're achieving so much. I have to say, the point at which we're recording this show... We don't know if the Starship SN5, this prototype they've got of Starship, has completed its 150-metre hop, which was originally scheduled for yesterday, which I tried to watch live, but it was called off at the last minute. And then I believe it's scheduled for later tonight, our time right now. So that may or may not have gone wrong. I'm rather guessing that this time it's going to go right because they stopped it at the last minute to eliminate a variable that would have been catastrophic. And that means they could well be successful. But of course, SpaceX isn't the only bit of space news this week. We've had both NASA and the UAE have launched missions to Mars. Yeah. And yeah, fantastic. Maybe we're on the way to Mars because one of the significant things about the Mars Perseverance mission, which is essentially a mission to send another rover to the red planet to do, you know, a slightly different kind of battery of tests on the surface, drill beneath the surface, to take samples, although it won't actually be able to return the samples, but it will be collecting samples that may be returned by a later mission. Yeah, I was going to say, not immediately, yeah. Not immediately, yeah, yeah, because bringing stuff back from Mars is a whole other big deal. But one of the interesting things about this mission, of course, is there are a couple of aspects of the mission that will be working towards possible future human exploration of Mars. Experiments like the MOXIE experiment, I think it is. I don't know this. What's that? Is it Mars Oxygen In Situ experiment, I think it is. It's essentially a proof of concept, a test of a procedure for extracting oxygen from carbon dioxide in Mars atmosphere, which is one of the key elements that you need for your infrastructure for any human exploration of Mars, actually, and possibly even future robotic exploration, that's more ambitious than what we're doing at the moment, because if you want to live on the surface of Mars and you're a human being, you need oxygen. So this is demonstrating whether it's in principle possible to do that by pulling that out of the Martian atmosphere. But also, if you're going to do, for example, a sample return mission or all kinds of other robotic exploration, it's going to be a whole lot easier if you don't have to take with you to the surface of Mars the oxidizer and the fuel that you need to get yourself back off the surface yeah yeah you've got to make it locally really for efficiency's sake yeah exactly yeah you've got to make it locally if you can make your oxygen to put in your liquid oxygen tank for your rocket then that's one step closer to being able to do a particular kind of sample return mission or to get your SpaceX Starship back up off the surface of Mars. I was about to say this research that NASA are doing with Perseverance will actually benefit the SpaceX Mars project because they're talking about sending up a fleet of starships 
to Mars. And I have to say, this sounded like science fiction a few years ago, but as we inch closer to that first hop of Starship, it's becoming less so. So the idea is to send up a fleet of these unmanned vessels initially, which will land and start processing resources on Mars to create the fuel and to create the oxygen for the astronauts to breathe on Mars when manned versions of Starship arrive on the Red Planet. It's terribly, terribly, terribly exciting for even a moon nut like me. I've always considered the moon the most exciting thing in the solar system, perhaps because I was old enough to watch the moon landings live. But it is conceivable, even as a man who's approaching 60 years old, that I might just still be alive at a time when humans set foot on Mars and I will cry with joy. I believed it. I would see it when I was 10 years old, but for the between you know, ages of 15 and 59 today, I didn't think I'd ever see humans on Mars, but it's, it's possible, isn't it? It's possible, yeah. And let's remember that the SpaceX Raptor engine has been designed to run on methane fuel, you know, specifically because you can make that fuel in space. Yep. You can get that fuel at a destination like Mars. Whereas if you have a kerosene-fueled engine, for example you're not going to be able to make kerosene on the surface of Mars. And you rightly say that SpaceX's ideas it sound like science fiction, but they keep pulling stuff off. Yeah. A few years ago, one might have been very sceptical about whether SpaceX would be taking people to the ISS. But they've become the first private company to operate reusable rockets. Well, they've become the first launch vehicle operator to deploy reusable rockets. And they've made it to the ISS and back. I'm not inclined to say that SpaceX can't do something, even when it seems that what they're planning to do is quite ambitious. They may not do it in the timescale that they're talking about doing it. But, That's um, generally true, that whatever prediction Elon Musk makes for his ambitious programme... It's invariably five, arguably ten years later than initially proposed, but they do actually get there, and it's consistent now. And you can extend that into the world of cars as well. When Elon Musk started building Teslas, a car with a range of 250, 300 miles, the rest of the motor industry was going, no, you can't do that, can't do that. And yet they did, and the rest of the motor industry has had to play catch-up. And the rest of the space programs on the planet will have to play catch-up as well to what SpaceX are doing. Talking of which, you mentioned the United Arab Emirates sending the HOPE mission to Mars. It's not a lander, though, is it? It's just an orbiter. It's an orbiter, yeah. yeah. And also, the Chinese have recently launched uh, a mission to Mars because we're in a critical window at the moment where if you want to go to Mars, you have to leave in the next month or so, otherwise the journey is three times as long. It's all to do with uh, orbital coincidences. Yeah, yeah. If anyone's interested in trying to understand why it is that you get these sort of relatively narrow windows of opportunity to launch missions like this, have a play with Kerbal Space Programme. Yeah. And that will give you a great feel for how vastly different it is in terms of difficulty and the amount of energy and time that is required to get from an inner planet to an outer planet or any two different planets in the solar system depending on exactly where those two planets are in their respective orbits and yeah and we're at one of those points now when the trip to mars is at its easiest 
and it's just going to get harder once the positions of the planets move further on in their orbits. The Chinese have actually launched a rover to Mars, a bigger brother to the two U-2 lunar rovers that the Chinese successfully landed on the near side and the far side of the moon in the last few years. And I can't wait to see what they will achieve on a Mars mission. Mars is notoriously difficult to land on, though, because... Landing on the moon is relatively easy because you have low gravity, no air resistance, so you float down and then break at the last minute. That's not too difficult. Landing on Earth, you've got a nice, thick, soupy atmosphere. You can burn off your re-entry speed because of that thickness of the atmosphere, then deploy parachutes, which work really well, and plop down safely onto the ground. Now, Mars has a very, very low-pressure atmosphere and a huge amount of gravity. It's around 40% of Earth gravity, I think. It's in the same kind of range as Earth, the point being, as you say, that whereas with the Moon you've got relatively low gravity, so the amount of energy that you pick up in the course of being pulled towards its surface in your landing is relatively easy to deal with with a chemical rocket yeah yeah with mars you've got this nasty combination of enough gravity to pull you towards the planet really fast and that's even before you may be barreling towards the planet at you know fifty thousand kilometers an hour or whatever speed it is you're going because you're going from earth to mars so yeah so you're making a very rapid approach to the surface there's very little atmosphere to slow you down but also i believe the atmosphere is at least variable enough in its kind of density and in whether there are dust storms going on or not, that you do have to kind of think about this atmosphere. And it can create some uncertainty in your landing trajectory. So let's say that you've done the actually very tricky job of designing just the right kind of parachutes to open and operate successfully in Mars's very thin atmosphere. At the very high speed, you're going to be going through that atmosphere. Even if you've done that, the possible variability in the density of the atmosphere and the characteristics of the atmosphere as you're descending can be sufficient that you can't rely on landing in exactly the spot you'd planned. Yeah. With the Americans, NASA, have over the years developed a very complex way of putting rovers on Mars, haven't they? Where they use an ablative heat shield for an aerodynamic drag for the initial stage. Then they deploy a sort of a drogue chute, which slows you down a little bit in the atmosphere. And then finally, this crazy, do they call it sky crane system? Sky crane, yeah. Yeah. Where they have retro thrusters firing, which then lowers the lander onto the surface of the planet on a sort of a rope, for once of a better word, and possibly even airbags to soften that final impact. I mean, it's so complicated. And yet, here's another example of SpaceX thinking. SpaceX are talking about the Starship flying down onto the Martian surface like a skydiver. It's going to sort of belly down, isn't it, with those little winglets that it's got, and then turn at the last second and retro motors will fire to land it pointy end up. That'll be worth seeing. Yeah, and just to quickly go back to that sky crane, because in a sense what you're talking about the Starship doing there is a little bit like part of what that NASA sky crane descent system is doing and that yeah it's scrubbing off some of the speed with offering a broadside to the atmosphere yeah. and being slowed down by the compressing 
against the atmosphere rather than friction, I believe. Uh-huh. You're using drag of the atmosphere to slow you down, and then you do your last bit with rockets to slow you down. But I was listening to this interesting discussion about why it's basically easier to use your rockets and then lower your rover on cables rather than just stick the rockets on the rover and just use those at the last minute. It just turns out that the uncertainty in getting your thrust just right so that you don't sort of touch down and then take off again uh-huh. is actually quite tricky. And it's just easier to kind of hover a few metres above the surface and lower the thing down on cables and then just detach the cables as soon as the thing touches down. It just turns out that it's easier and safer to do that than it is to try and get your balance of thrust versus gravity just right so that you neither collide with the surface at just too high a speed or you touch down and then take off again before you lose your rockets. just turns out that it's easier in practice. Well, we wish Perseverance, the rover, well. It's due to arrive at Mars in February next year, I believe. Sounds about right. Yeah, I think both of these missions are due yeah. to arrive yeah. in 2021. Unless so, the Chinese um, get there first with a faster rocket, who knows? <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing their results. Finally, before we wrap this up, I have to say I have a particular vested interest in the Perseverance mission for two reasons. First of all, they're taking a helicopter with them, a drone called Ingenuity, oh, yes. which is going to give us aerial shots shots of the rover on Mars. That's so exciting. I'm going to launch the first ever vehicle to fly aerodynamically on another planet. That's amazing. Yes. And second of all, the name of this mission, Perseverance, as a Slade fan means a lot to me because Slade's record label was called Perseverance. (laughs) And I made a documentary about Slade in 1986, I think, called Perseverance, the story of Slade. So for me, this is like a Slade Mars landing. How happy do you think that's going to make me? can imagine you're absolutely made up (laughs) the synchronicity of Slade and space come on feel the Mars you've been listening to Zog goodbye and me Gareth happy landings enjoy the 70th anniversary Grand Prix this weekend and we'll be back with another episode of Gareth Jones on Speed in two weeks see ya to send us an email see pictures get song lyrics join our Facebook fan site follow us on Twitter or to find out about sponsorship opportunities go to garethjones.tv Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Bang Gareth Jones on Speed